0: Hello and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Hans Zandice, president of Ally Lending. Ally Lending is the lending division of Ally Bank, which is a long-term player in the online banking space. And with that, here's my interview with Hans. Hans, thanks for taking the time today. It's Monday morning, Jason. All good. Happy to be here, Jason. Happy to be here. Yes, what you didn't hear there is we edited out about three attempts at getting the introduction right. Yes, it is Monday (laughs) at 9 a.m. And I had insomnia last night. Okay, so Hans Zandice of Ally Lending. Tell us about Ally Lending.
1: Well, Jason, happy to do it. You know, and good morning. I think so. Ally Lending is the point of sale lending arm of Ally Financial and Ally Bank. We have been around for now six years. We started as credit services Corp, but we were lending in the medical environment only. Ally acquired us in October of 2019, and we have continued to grow. Um, Since then, we've grown into multiple markets, uh, home improvement and retail. And uh, we basically like to be at the point of sale. So if you go to a doctor's office, or you go to a retailer, or if you go to uh, home improvement, uh, or someone from home improvement comes to your house, we are an option for those
0: providers. Excellent. We're going to talk about the distribution of that and the challenges within because that is not a small feat. So give me the history, you already gave me kind of the, the rough history of the, that this was an acquisition, but give me the history of the company and what led to its foundation and eventual uh, merging with, uh, with Ally. Sure, sure. So myself
1: and two other founders, Matt McKenna and Clark Burgett, started the business in June of 2015. We funded it ourselves, kind of grew, grew the platform, brought on a, a number of other uh, institutions to kind of be our balance sheet partners and then grew the business. And when we got to roughly probably about 400 million in originations, we got acquired by Ally in, again, as I mentioned, in October of 2019. At that point, we were only in the medical space. So we would basically, if you were in the doctor's office, the inception of the business was that, how do we help consumers pay for healthcare? And as, as, as everybody knows, consumer responsibility is growing every year. And as more of that responsibility pushes away from employers and away from insurers to the consumers, how do we help them pay? You've obviously got higher deductibles, more out of pocket. And so we we, we continue to feel that's a huge opportunity to help consumers pay for healthcare. Healthcare is the largest driver of bankruptcy for, uh, for consumers. And so how do you balance that? And then as we got acquired uh, in 2019, we started looking at other markets, and we moved into home improvement in effectively May of 2020. So when all was right, you know, we were that was in the middle of the pandemic, and we kind of opened up into into that space. And then, really, beginning of late 2020, early 2021, we um, we piloted in retail
0: markets. Interesting. So, how long did it take you to 400 million in total lending? Took us three and a half years. Jeez, I'm curious when you were just in the medical space, what was the average loan size you were dealing with?
1: You know, average loan size was about $4,000. So we're, we were in both elective and non-elective space. And really, you know, so if you needed a new knee and you weren't planning on getting your ACL done and you had 5,000 out of scope, out of pocket, you know, we would, we would cover, you know, we would cover, you know, up, at least up to that. Are you know, We go up to about $40,000 for the consumer. And, and so we started there. Or if your kids needed braces, that also tends to be about $4,000. Hearing aids, $2,000 a piece in the States. So all of that kind of evolved around about four dollars to $5,000 per ticket.
0: And you know how small a loan will you do? Set up the forty thousand. What's what was the typical kind of minimum entry point
1: for us? We we generally don't go under seven fifty at the moment. We generally think there's kind of a we're an installment loan only. We do not mm-hmm. do the line of credit. So in that installment loan, when you kind of look at what's your minimum that you would really you know and we you know we can do a six month or three month promotions and we go up to we go up to really eighty four months in length and so. Just want to find that balance where the ticket, you know, you don't want a ticket obviously sitting at ten dollars a month for somebody.
0: Yeah, and I, I was asking those questions for a very particular reason and it was trying to, you know, let's let's address the challenge, right? The when it comes to lending from traditional banks. The reality is we're typically talking much larger numbers than $750, right? We're talking about mortgages on your house. We're talking about personal lines of credit, several thousand. And in that moment in time, when you have that expense that presents itself to you, and if you don't have an available credit facility for you that was negotiated for something else previously, the odds are you're not going to say, hmm, OK, I need to get that surgery done. I'll be back in a couple of weeks after I go negotiate a line of credit with my bank. That's a highly inconvenient. And if you're already at a certain level of credit, that, that might be a very difficult uh, thing to do. Do so. You know the need there is is very real. I won't say you're you're definitely not a microtransactions company, but you're definitely one where the numbers aren't just are just aren't really appealing to traditional lenders. Is that about fair to say?
1: Uh, perhaps. I mean, I think what we have seen is consumer behavior is changing. I think uh-huh. consumers are looking to move away a traditional credit card only type transactions. Yes. And that where you know, all of a sudden you sit, if you have a, a credit limit of $10,000 and all of a sudden you sit at $9,000 because you've been using it for these little incremental things and you don't remember women, what did I buy for that $9,000? I think what consumers are really starting to move towards. And I think you'll see that because of the, if you look overall at the general line of credit continues to grow in 15 to 20% a clip per year where credit cards been pretty flat to slightly down.
0: and well, In fairness, those rates haven't changed much, whereas the line of credit rates have been this long, progressive downward slope, right? Yeah,
1: you know, it's true. So rates are better for the yep. consumers, one. Two is they can say, this is my loan. I'm going to pay for this loan. It's actually more responsible because I'm going to pay for this loan because this loan was my kid's prices or was my knee. And they like to actually pay that down and kind of connect the, mm. the payment uh, with what was actually being done, it's a mental then, accounting
0: trick. I, I can see that it's a behavioral finance concept. Mentally, trip. right? Yeah, exactly. and, I, and
1: And so, I think that, and the fact that our rates are better rates for consumers, continue to think that's going to be a trend for probably, I would think, the next five to
0: ten years. Oh, there's there's a lot of daylight between uh, secured mortgage rates and credit card rates. That's for sure. So there's <laughs> there's some room there. And the, the mental accounting trick is is interesting. I can see that, right? Because. I don't think anyone gets a credit card bill and doesn't feel a little bit of guilt. And whereas, and maybe three, four months down the road, they've they've disassociated what it was that they were actually, what they were actually spending that money on. Whereas you've actually created, again, a mental accounting trick here, where it's essentially like that's the loan that was for this very specific purpose, and I'm okay with that. So that makes a lot of sense.
1: Well, and so- one thing we also saw was that Consumers really like to kind of keep their credit cards for either emergencies if they their dryer goes out or something of that effect, or if they and for vacations. And so uh <laughs> and so, you know, consumers love their vacation, you know, especially you know, US loves their vacations. And so they don't wanna have no credit facility them that limits their ability to go on vacation and so kind of spreading that out into a different facility has proven to be a right call for us we've had a number of conversations when we look through la, you know when you look through years like last year you know credit card spending was down credit card debt consolidation was down we the industry overall was up and we were up 100 plus percent you know last year and because consumers where we were, people were still spending money on medical, except for six days. You were in
0: a good spot for renovations. My
1: goodness! And then renovations. I mean, yep. you know, when that—that that was certainly we grew the business in renovations, obviously from zero last year to about just under four hundred million, which was amazing. We grew that much in one year when it took us about three, three and a half years to get to the 400 million first time around.
0: So talk to me about the challenge of distribution, because your specific term that kind of resonated was the point of sale lending. So it's a decision being made at the time of acquisition of whatever it is you're getting the product or service. That basically means you have to be there at the point of sale. So talk to me how you accomplish that.
1: Yeah, Jason, I appreciate you mentioning that. I, we are a to B2, c player. Uh And unlike, I think, a lot of other kind of fintech platforms that are out there today that kind of are, I think, a more traditional D2C play, our whole platform and a lot of the kind of value prop that we put together and we've invested in is the B2B2C. So how do we integrate into our providers? And those providers, again, are medical, home improvement, and retailers how do we integrate into their into their workflows, into their systems so that it's not a separate workflow? It actually, okay, they have their own workflow that kind of takes a consumer from A to Z. And how do we fit into that workflow so that it's a simplified process for both the providers and the consumers? And so what we do to then go out and get them is we go out and we literally have sales teams that are that are out talking to doctor's offices, out talking to home improvement. Providers, HVAC, roofers, things like that. Mostly ones that are out in your home, and then obviously we're now getting into retail, and where then we are uh, just basically an option for the consumer when they are at you know when they're at the decision point of okay, I need to buy a, get a new roof, and it's ten thousand dollars. How you're going to pay for it? And we're an option, and we've got groups that do twenty percent of the tickets are point of sale. Through us and we've got other groups that ninety percent of their consumers are actually funded through loans.
0: So, are you simply having? Are these companies simply just letting them know to basically visit your website and go through the application process, or is there anything more embedded than that? Like, how no, we we.
1: Again, great point. I appreciate you saying that. Is we embed into their, you know, through our APIs and their APIs, we embed into their workflow. So, if they're using customer some CRM whether it's Salesforce or anything that, you know, we can be epic in some of the healthcare spaces. We integrate into those platforms and then that way they don't actually have to get out of those platforms and out of that workflow to assist the consumer with payments.
0: Interesting. So and it makes a lot of sense. What you're doing is you're trying to create a seamless decision uh, where basically it's, you know, you're, it's like it's like going through a checkout process and having that option at the end. So
1: what we've found is, is that, Yes, you can create the, okay, yes, you now found out that it's $5,000 and what are you going to go do? Go out to an app or go out to a website to go and get a loan and then come back and there's and there's some interaction and they provide you yeah. some number. I just find that a very kludgy process and not simplified for the consumer or, or the provider for that matter. So when I think of our value prop, our value prop is... How do we integrate in the consumer? So when I'm looking at where am I investing in the technology, we're investing in our APIs, we're investing in how we integrate into multiple platforms across multiple verticals. and And then what are packages that we think are important to understand for us to understand our consumers, our consumers and our providers for that matter? So we'll work around creating marketing campaigns to both the consumers and the providers. We will look to develop to better understanding of, of how we're making decisions around that. So when we start talking about where we're investing as a technology, to me, it's all around the B2B, predominantly around the B2B, but obviously the experience for the consumer as well, and obviously pricing for consumers.
0: Yeah. I mean, it really does need to be as seamless as the cash or credit question, right? Like, I mean, at the end of the day, if you say, okay, cash creditor, by the way, go through these other five steps on your phone and then come back to me and show me the authentication or it'll email me with this code. Again, broken experience. Like no one wants that. At the end of the day, you need to remove the friction to all of this to make it a viable option. So it makes a lot of sense that you've done that.
1: I so- remember when we, I used to run the debit card business for B of A. And at that point we were pushing PIN and really wanted people to pick up the chip and leverage the chip. No one wanted to leverage the chip except in Europe. And then it wasn't really until the pandemic that the chip really has, has taken off. And because it's a simpler, for, it's a sim- more simple process. Sorry. It's a more simple process. So, so you just tap and you go, it's yeah. very similar in the B2B environment, right? How do you make that process so seamless and so simple so that the consumer just adds, and sometimes you can, you, you feed from the provider basically system into hours so that it simplifies, you know, so the consumers then only need to add one or two or three incremental data sets, and then you're approved and, and you sign and you move on.
0: Yeah, you know, living in a country that got the chip way after Europe, but way before the Americans. As you still wonder, every time I went down there, please tell me why I am authenticating with a squiggle of ink. This makes no sense to me. And But, but in fairness, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was about three years ago or something that I think the credit card companies changed their terms of service that fraud was the was the responsibility of the weakest point in the chain. So everybody went around and updated their machines to basically support touchless pay, and that kind of helped create the infrastructure to support everything. So yeah, <laughs> fear of lawsuit or fear of being stuck with the fraud is a, is a great motivator, isn't it? Money, Money is a
1: motivator,
0: without a sure. doubt. I know well, I it's doubt. one of yeah yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's it's one of those things where your start point <laughs> determines your trajectory, and you know there was a lot of convenience in just swiping. So adding another step was not necessarily seen as beneficial. But someone who pays for almost everything with his watch, <laughs> I, I much prefer the tap experience. So well, I um,
1: when I when I was running that business, I said, okay, I'm gonna I'm no longer going to use cash. I just want to see how much what kind of migration I could do to a debit card. And in fact, and actually, I basically got a hundred percent to a card. I remember my kids always were yelling at me, dad, you have five bucks. I never carried cash. Still don't carry cash. And even more so now And that I went really to certainly to card at that point. But now to your point, you know, I'm a big fan of just simply using your phone, using any of the options that that uh, your phone offers you or your card, I think, does make it simple. And that kind of gets wrapped back to us. If you kind of go back and you're going through a whole process Again, I use the I use the dentist and your kids braces as an example. You got to keep it simple. You kind of get to to the point where, okay, Johnny needs five thousand dollars worth of braces. How are you going to pay? And they're saying, here are our options. And it just you can press, you know, this feeds here. Hit these three or four fields, and here are your options. Sign e-sign the documents, and you go. Keep it simple. If it ends up being this, oh, okay, well, wait a minute. Let's go create this paper-based process, sign all these things offline. They're going to input it in or something to that effect. You will, A, it's a terrible experience for the consumers. And then B, I think your pull through on that's going to be really low.
0: I largely agree. Again, any point of friction is a point where people jump off. That's that's what it comes down to, right? It's um, it just it is what it is. So, talk to me about the initial feedback you garnered from the vendors you went to. Specifically, the you know we'll start off with the with the medical industry, and then we'll move over to renovations. But did they look at this? Were they skeptical? Like when they first saw it, what was their, What was the reticence that you encountered? And then when they adopted it, what was the feedback from there?
1: Uh, what I think we found was. Our providers really thought that our process was considerably simpler. If you look at kind of some of our competitors out in the market, a lot of them tend to be people that have been in the space for 15, 20 years. I think their process really is a little more, well, I'll call it kludgy, just not as streamlined. And so I think what we found was because it was so simple, in general, you have, if you think about our, our providers, and let's start to medical. A lot of the medical front end uh, employee base, they have turnover of one and a half to two a year. So that whole, so it has to be simple for that group to basically be able to pick it up and actually mm-hmm. then integrate it into their sales cycle. And so we, our training can go 45 minutes to an hour, but generally people are done in 20 to 30 minutes because it's just, they get a sense. You know, you kind of walk through apps. You're going to walk through disclosures. You're going to walk through uh, mm-hmm. signing the documents. It's a pretty simple. It's we think it's an extremely simple process. And so, as you go through that, we found that was probably one was the was the most important attribute. The second most important attribute was. Getting approvals. Obviously, you don't want to get your. You know, how do we get your consumer? If that consumer goes through and then gets gets declined, that's you know a terrible experience. And so we worked with our partners to try to figure out. Okay, we risk based price. How do we help them kind of get to a point where they where they can get as many approvals? You know, and the consumer can get as many approvals that they're interested in. And then, and I'd say I would say those were the the two kind of right out of the out of the box that we really kind of were, was our guiding light. And then, and then I realized, okay, well, how do we really start integrating into that simplified process into their workflow? And that's, we really started probably in 2017, we really started investing. We were already invested in APIs, but I think we invested heavily in in APIs at that point to start becoming simpler and simpler. And honestly, when I think Mm -hmm. of Stripe, Stripe actually really helped me learn about, wow, look at what they did around their API strategy. And that actually helped give me a little bit of, of, of a path that said we should, you know, we really wanted to be the Stripe at that point, the Stripe of lending and create these APIs that are completely simplified so that we can integrate into all these different workflows. And that's been one of our kind of larger
0: drivers in my view. Now Stripe is <laughs> remarkable copy paste a couple lines of code and suddenly you're ready to go. So let's go back and touch upon something you mentioned briefly, and that's kind of your approval process specifically as it has to do with underwriting. So you mentioned risk-based pricing, which just means, hey, you're going to charge more for people who are higher risk and therefore offsets the risk of that. Tell me about the challenges you encountered in developing a kind of point of sale underwriting model and how you basically got get people to yes at the right number as fast as possible.
1: So I would say first and foremost, it was actually the underwriting of the provider, which was which really I think started our journey of risk and understanding risk. You can if you sign up a provider that is a not a real provider and then it's kind of they're they're gener- they're kind of running fake consumers through your portal, that's where you're going to get your biggest potential risk. And so A, you got to first make sure that who you're doing business with is a legitimate organization, and is standing providing services. That's probably, in my view, 80% of the battle. Get that right and do that in a way that's automated so that you're not doing, you know, you certainly, you know, we started out doing manual underwriting, obviously, and migrated that to fully automated underwriting up front. That probably reduced of the risk and, and fraud that we had, That reduced probably 80 plus percent. Then you went to consumer. That point, then you're saying, okay, the consumer is going to the doctor's office and is getting, their kids are getting braces or they are getting a new knee. So there's a lot of kind of what I would say is natural kind of KYC, know your customer activities that are happening between the doctor and the patient in that process. And how do we leverage that? in us understanding who that consumer is. And then you added, obviously, we have over 24, 25 different attributes that we pull in. FICO is one of the the 24, but we've added alternative data sets as well to basically help maximize our understanding of the consumer and the risk that we're taking on through our approval.
0: How's that worked out for you thus far? I mean, I've I've seen all kinds of even academically supported reports where basically these risk ratings are are being developed to such a level of proficiency that they're compared to the FICO score. They're far superior, lending to people who would never otherwise qualify at rates that FICO would predict two to three x the insult the the non compliance rate and not being the case. So, well, how's how's your experience? Well, I,
1: and I think it depends on the product that you offer, right? I think if you look at some of the buy now pay later options that are out in the space today, and the groups are, and we know these groups very well. They tend to have 60 plus percent of their consumer base is low FICO to no FICO, and whether they're they're new consumers into the into the commerce environment or or they just haven't kind of taken the time to build credit, I think that's and most of those guys leverage I think phone data. I know they leverage phone data at a pretty high high clip. We like to consider that data. It's a part of our of our process. But I think and those groups tend to that product is a you know, as you know, it's a two-month product, three payment, four payments, after free payments after you do the down payment. And I think that it'll be interesting to see how that group performs here over the next kind of 18 to 24 months. What I'd like to think is we've kind of found the balance between FICO-only alternative data and the combination of them. And we would not be making, you know, I'm not giving 60% approvals to no score, but I basically feel like we're in between and we take all the data sets and we may, and then also, and so it depends on also the the ticket. So if, if you're putting up an approval for a ticket that's for 250 bucks, which is $200, $300 is the average ticket for a buy now pay later platform versus ours, which is really our average tickets of $4,000. Actually, it's now trending closer to five. There's a difference in obviously what we're going to kind of approve and how we're going to go to the market.
0: So talk to me about the expansion from medical. Why was... Renovation is the next logical place to go. What else did you consider? What was uh, in your slow taking over of different aspects of the universe? You know, where do you want to attack next?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it really comes down to when you look at consumers and where they're spending their money, there's of the 1.3 trillion that's spent, right? You basically have retail is number one in your largest, then you have home improvement, then medical, and then you have kind of travel is sits at like one, 2%. So, those are the three buckets where consumers are spending their their dollars overall, again, whether it's point of sale or credit card or or whatnot. So we basically broke those down, starting in medical, and then what was next? For me, again, it goes back to when you look at our workflow and how we fit, we fit very well and our product set, we fit very well into the home improvement space. That was a natural and kind of natural next step. Higher ticket prices most of these are home owners, so it just it was a natural step for us then the third step it was retail and we actually partnered with with Cecil, who's a buy now pay later mm-hmm. provider today as you know and growing great great partner and we felt the combination of our product and our longer term products with their shorter term products was a kind of a nice step and a nice way to get into retail and then provide, again, as broad of an approval as we can for those retailers that we're partnering with, with SeSM.
0: You know, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, those are the four areas you went for the two largest ticket items that there were with the fewest number of transactions, right? I mean, that's that's what it comes down to. Whereas, you know, the retail stuff, like the Sezzles and the afterpays of the world, I'm seeing this stuff come up on like $50 purchases. That's a heck of a lot of underwriting for a heck of tiny loans, heck of a lot of tiny loans. And then the, uh, although I'm very interested in the concept of travel financing, that should be, uh, that might be the next uh, Greenfield people tackle. That'll be amusing. It'd
1: be interesting. There's
0: a interesting... I mean, there's a lot of fraud there, right? And so yeah.
1: you've got to be really smart about how do you tackle that. And I think one of the things is that I, I had a phone call basically from an investors or an investor based group last week, and they were talking about, well, you're starting to see delinquencies tick up in the kind of the, some of the buy now, pay later platforms. And what do you think about that? I actually have not seen that data yet, but that's what they were talking to. And I just said, well, we kind of talked through again our approvals and where we are and the decisions we make versus the differences that, uh, on the decisions that they're making. And so, you know, we'll see, but to your point, the lower ticket the average is about 200 bucks. But again, that makes it okay. You take 50 bucks out of your pay, paycheck for, Four payments, fifty bucks. Seems simple enough. But if you are living check to check, that's still fifty bucks, and that's a hundred dollars out of the month. So we'll see how that plays here in the short
0: term. Yeah, it's a different challenge. But like I said, I mean, to me, especially given the way you you entered the market, and again, the initial vertical that you went into, the secondary one when you when you broke it down in terms of spending, just makes so much sense in comparison. You know, let let someone else worry about microtransactions. You worry yeah. about the bigger one-ticket ones. That it's not only that. I think. Frankly, there's there's a there's a big difference between wanting to finance that iPhone purchase versus oh boy, I need to replace my bathroom, or oh my goodness, I need to have this surgery, right? Like those are those are different. No, I think it's
1: decisions. I and I'm not rushing to jump into that kind of that e-commerce lower yeah. ticket environment. I'd like where we are. I think the advantages that we have, I mean the investments that we've made over the last five years, specifically again around that whole value prop of a b2b to, B to c i think is really what's going to continue to lead us and uh, and we'll watch how the kind of smaller ticket e-commerce transaction flow goes over you know over the coming years here
0: so before we wrap up there's three questions i ask everybody on a positive note the first one is if you had one wish for something to change in your company or in the industry as a whole what would it be more dev capacity. <laughs> you know? Oh my God! Yeah, there you go. That's one <laughs> way of saying it. I mean, we just—you can't get enough
1: developers, and we can't move no. fast enough. And what's exciting—I I, really—I've I, said this before. I—I I really believe. I've been in in payments now for at least fifteen, probably seventeen years, and I love what I see. I think it's been—it's just been such a great amount of movement. During that period, but I think we're probably only in inning two. I think we've got a long way to go of what is going to happen within payments, and it's just an exciting place to kind of stake your claim. And that's going to be a fun. It's going to be a fun industry to be a part of for the next twenty five years.
0: I have no doubt. The yeah, uh, the debt capacity one. I mean, most more often than not, the the answer is similar. It's people, and it's you know getting the right people. And some of the stories I hear now of people of. of Young know, people finishing like coding boot camps and getting poached to move to the Valley. I'm just like, what is going on? <laughs> that was this short seventy-five
1: grand kids are. You know, people coming out of high school making seventy-five grand, and which is
0: amazing. Like, good for them. And yeah. you, know, yeah, you know, good the, for them. But as where that man, goes long term. Well, I will also say, as a well, we all know that you can have ten moderately okay. Coders that will accomplish the same work as one really talented one, right? So it's uh, I'm 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 lucky enough to know a handful of very talented ones who get a lot done. And my goodness, like the delta on what I see them produce versus others in teams, it's just, it's night and day. So yeah, it's good for them, but my, yeah, but there's, I also worry about the general quality of some of the stuff coming out, but just because we're trying to fill, the, fill the, the demand curve on this one is what it is. Second question for you. What's been the biggest challenge? Or maybe it's the same question. <laughs> what's been the biggest challenge in getting to where you are today?
1: We started the business frankly, you know, with our own money and we funded it, we funded the loans, we funded the investment on the platform. It used to be, call it in 20, you know, 17, 18 and 19. This was a tough, this wasn't as, especially as a balance sheet lender, which I was always a part believer in, you have to have some of the risk or else you don't really understand your the credit decisions you're making. And so was capital. So that was the other piece that was tough when we were on kind of on our own, obviously no longer an issue. I would say since kind of the acquisition, I would say that while the market has the speed of change in the space is incredible. And it just feels like in the last two years that we were clipping along at probably a good 50, 60 mile per hour rate. And now we're sitting at 100. Everyone is running. And so that's great. It offers a ton of opportunity, but it, you just have to, you've got to pick up the pace.
0: And lastly, what excites you the most about what it is you're working on today and keeps you getting up in the morning to fight the good fight?
1: Yeah, I love where we sit. I love that we're, I love being the B2B player. I love building a value prop around B2B to see. And I, I think that's going to be our real strong differentiator over the next, call it five to 10 years. That's going to give us a real long run. Could kind of take over, you know. What I, you know, my goal is in the markets that we play. I used to be more of a Jack Welsh kind of guy, be a top three player. Yep. If you can't be a top three player, don't be in the space.
0: Yep, no, it's true. Disproportionate profits aggregate to the top, so it is what it is. Hans, thank you so much for uh, taking time today. Sincerely appreciate this, and uh, thanks for telling your story. No, nice to meet you, Jason. I look forward to staying connected. So that was today's episode of FinTech Impact. I hope you enjoyed that. And if you're in the US looking to finance either medical or renovations, take a good look at what is offering, because I think it's, uh, <laughs> frankly, it's a nice convenient option other than with your traditional ones. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever it is your podcast. Until next time, take care.